0: Morning church. Hey, my name is Perry. I'm just part of the staff team here at Calvary. I'm so glad you could join us this morning to my friends back in the classic service. Welcome. Glad you could be here as well. We're continuing on in our series this morning out of the book of Acts. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's part of what we call the New Testament. So Matthew is the first book, then Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. It's on page 531 in the pew Bibles. If you have a copy in front of you there, you can Go ahead and turn there now. We will be there in just a moment. Before we get into the sermon, though, I want to let you guys in the room know that there's a team of guys here at the church, some from the Erie campus who are part of the Men's Leadership Council, and they are here. Yeah. Everybody in the classic service is going wild right now, too. Yeah. Hey, they're going to hand you guys a stick of beef jerky and a postcard. The postcard has information on it for how you can register, and as soon as you accept the stick of beef jerky, you're in. So you're going to come to Men's Advance, which is in just three weeks, up in, um, by Buena Vista at Young Life, uh, Young Life uh, Trail West, Young Life Camp, rather, and this is a great opportunity for you guys in the room. If you're not familiar with how this works, every other year the women of Calvary and the men of Calvary take turns getting away up to the mountains to just have a good time together, to connect relationally, and most importantly to connect with God. There's just, in these moments, the opportunity to become milestones in your life. And so I hope you'll be able to join us I'm particularly excited this time because Pastor Tom and Thomas from out in Erie are going to be leading our time together as we open up the scriptures together. It's not going to be like a regular Sunday morning where you might hear Tom up here on stage. It's going to be a time for us to connect in a different environment, a different format, and a different setting. I hope you can join us. You just go to calvarybible.com to the events webpage, and you can sign up there. Oh, and one more thing I forgot to tell you. We are going to be throwing axes. <laughs> like, I don't mean like at each other. That, that'll get you arrested, but like in a competitive nature. So that'll be fun. But speaking of getting arrested, here's my segue into the sermon. <laughs> Have you ever been accused of disturbing the peace You ever been accused of, maybe you turned the music up too loud in your house and your roommates or your family accused you of disturbing the peace. Or maybe you wanted to get a head start on the day on a beautiful Colorado summer morning and at 6 a.m. you're outside mowing your lawn. Your neighbors might have accused you of disturbing the peace. Or, like me one time, uh, not long ago, I'm with my family and another family. We're down at Great Sand Dunes National Park camping. We have a campfire going. We're just singing songs, telling stories, laughing it up, having a great old time. And with the help of a park ranger, we discovered that we were disturbing the peace. It was past 10 o'clock. Whenever we disturb the peace, you can think of it as a disturbance of what's normal, It's a disturbance of what's acceptable, and really just at its core, it's annoying. But what would you think if I told you that as followers of Jesus, as people who want to faithfully pursue the Lord, you and I should expect to be people who are accused of disturbing the peace? To see that this morning, we're going to open up the scriptures and we're going to look at this incredible series of events that we first launched into last week. And we're going to see how the apostles handle this situation around the temple area. But before we get there, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we just ask for your favor this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us by helping us to tune in to what you have to say. Lord, I pray that we would be able to set aside the things that we're distracted by this morning, whether they're things that we are worried about, concerned about, or things that we're excited about, things maybe that are coming up this next week that really have our thoughts and our attention right now. God, I pray that we would be able to tune all of that out so that we can focus in on you this morning. I ask this all for your glory and in your name, amen. Well, last week, Pastor John started off this story that begins in Acts chapter 3. You might remember that Peter and John, two of Jesus' followers, were at the temple area. They're on their way to the temple in the middle of the afternoon for the afternoon prayers, just a regularly scheduled event in their lives. And as they're on their way, they come across what was probably a familiar sight to them, even a familiar face to them. There's a man who is begging. He's asking for what the text says, alms. He's asking for money. He's asking for help because the Bible says that this man was born lame. He had never been able to walk. So even from his mother's womb, he had never been able to be self-sufficient. He required other people's help. And as Peter and John approach this man, they say, silver and gold we do not have, but what we do have we give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And the man immediately leaps up. And you might imagine that if this guy is a familiar sight, then the people around would gather around and take notice of what had just happened in front of their eyes. Because the man who they recognized looking down on, because he had always been on the ground, was now standing up at eye level with them. What an incredible sight. And here's what the text says in chapter 3 that we looked at last week. We'll go quickly here. It says While he clung to Peter and John, and all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Psalms. It's just an area around the temple. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people Men of Israel. Why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? In other words, why do you think we pulled this off? We're not super godly people, that's not why this happened. He says, it was actually the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers, who glorified his servant, Jesus, the one who you handed over to Pilate, the Roman authority, to be crucified, even after Pilate had determined to set Jesus free. The name of that man, of Jesus, is the one who did this wonder. As we read on, verse 14, it says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Okay, so this takes us right now into chapter 4, which we're looking at this morning as our main text. And in chapter 4 we see that not only do just the common people around the temple area take notice but so do the people who are in charge of the temple. It says this, beginning in chapter four. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Okay, let's just pause right there for a second. These people here, the priests, the captain of the temple, the captain of the temple is the second in charge at the temple. He's the one who is responsible for making sure that the temple is maintained in an orderly fashion. And then you have this group of people called the Sadducees. The Sadducees ran the temple. They were responsible for overseeing everything that happened there. The Sadducees just theologically held to the first five books of the Bible to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in those five books of the Bible, they did not see any evidence or suggestion that there is a resurrection of the dead. And because of that, they do not believe there is such a thing as a resurrection of the dead. So when Jesus' name is proclaimed as the one who was killed and then came back to life, that's a threat to their theology. They do not accept that that is even a possibility. Okay, so the Sadducees come upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. We said just a minute ago that a disturbance of the peace is a disturbance of what's normal, it's a disturbance of what's acceptable, and it's annoying. The Sadducees are greatly annoyed right now because what they see is not normal. What they see is not acceptable. This is a problem for them. So as we read on then, verse four, while this greatly annoying situation is unfolding, we have this comment from Luke who wrote this book. He says, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. So the word of God, the gospel of God is going out and people are responding in thousands to the message that they are hearing. Okay, verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Okay, so we're introduced to some new figures here. We have Annas and and Caiaphas. These are people who could be familiar to us if you're familiar with the gospel stories. If you're familiar especially to the trial of Jesus, these are the men who are responsible in part for the crucifixion of Jesus. These are men who had such power that they could persuade the people to demand that Jesus be handed over to the Roman authorities to be crucified. And these are the same men here who now are going to question Peter and John. And so you have the whole high priestly family as well. These are like the who's who of the Jerusalem leaders. They're now standing right in front of Peter and John and they're asking this question. By what power, by what name did you do this? Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in, verse, in chapter 20, rather, there's a scene that unfolded in Jesus' time, just a few months before this, perhaps, that should remind us of what's going on here. In chapter 20... Verse 1 and 2, it says this, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up. These are some of the same characters who are in our scene in Acts 4. They came up and said to Jesus, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. So now, back in Acts 4, the same kind of thing is unfolding here. And this is such an important question to these men because they are the ones who are in authority. They are the ones who have power. You see, the whole authority system and structure is being threatened right now simply because the Sadducees are the ones who authorize people to act on behalf of God. And now God's power is apparently being displayed outside of their jurisdiction. They wanna know who gave you this power because we didn't give it to you. And as they do this, there is this great annoyance because they did not authorize what's unfolding in front of them. Not only that, but these events threaten the very system of power. They threaten the very status quo that they are so eager to maintain. And see, here's where we see how the gospel disturbs the peace. Now, let's just step outside of the text for a minute and think about several different ways where the gospel might disturb the status quo in our own lives, where it might challenge the prevailing thought of our culture, of our society. I'm going to speak in really broad terms with these examples, but here's one that we could think about. How about the claim, humanity is basically good, And along with this, you could also lump in some other claims, like given enough time and given enough opportunity, there's no problem that we cannot solve on our own. But at at its essence, it's this humanistic idea that humanity is basically good, and the gospel comes along and says this, none is righteous, no, not one. That's annoying if you believe this. How about another claim? Pursue intelligence, affluence, eloquence, appearance, achievement. These are the kinds of things that will get you ahead in life. These are the kinds of things that will help you flourish and succeed and be the most that you can be in your life. And then the annoyance of the gospel comes along and says this. So the last will be first and the first last. which is what Jesus says. It's recorded in the book of Matthew. Or how about this just basic idea that's out in our culture, that's in our world, that the most important questions I need to answer begin with me. Who am I? What is my identity? But instead, the gospel comes along and it says that the most important questions we can ask are in fact about who is Jesus and what is his identity. See, there are all kinds of philosophies and ideas and systems of belief out there that we get to choose from. We could just take a little bit of this system, a little bit of that, and try to create our own reality and try to create our own system that will help us make sense of our world, that'll help us establish a sense of self-importance and meaning and significance in our life. And in and of itself, those desires are not bad. But we choose them from all kinds of different competing ideas that are just circling in the air. And the gospel comes along and makes these counterclaims that disturb that kind of peace that we've tried to construct on our own. But there's even one more facet of the gospel that disturbs the peace far worse. And we're gonna see that now as we get back into the text. Okay, look with me, beginning in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a, a crippled man, I mean, think about that for a second. Just stop there. Think about the absurdity of what is going on here. They are being questioned because of a good deed done to a crippled man. It's not... You took a good man and made him crippled. It's This is a good deed done to a crippled man. He's no longer crippled. But they're being questioned about it. Peter goes on and he says, By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. Peter could have just said, it was the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who performed this wonder. That's whose authority that we did this under. But he like takes the knife and just jabs it into their side and says, no, no, this is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The one who you crucified, the one who God raised from the dead, as offensive as that might be to you Sadducees, that that is even a possibility, that's the one whose authority we used. But now Peter's going to take that knife and he's going to actually twist it. And he says this by quoting Psalm 118, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So in Psalm 118, it's the scene of the temple. It's a glorious celebration. It begins and ends with, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his love endures forever. And in that psalm, there's this this point where the psalmist looks around the temple area, and he sees the cornerstone where two walls come together. And he sees that as the cornerstone, that most important stone that holds up the walls... He sees this is the stone that the builders had rejected, but now has become the cornerstone. But Peter doesn't just say, in general, this is what happens in this psalm. He says, you are the builders who rejected the cornerstone. You are the ones who the psalm was about. As he twists the knife, I can only imagine their response. And then... To top it all off, we have this incredible claim in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is where the gospel disturbs the peace unlike any other claim in our lives. The claim of our world might be something like this. That there are many paths that lead to the same destination. They lead to the same place. You can choose whichever one works for you. Your truth is not my truth, but that's okay. As long as you have your truth, that's fine. Not only that, but you can choose a path that looks really different from my path, but we know that they all end up the same at the same place. Where it's all going to work out in the end, no matter what you choose. As long as you're happy, I'm happy for you. And the gospel comes along with this annoying claim that says, and there is salvation in no one else. This, at its core, is a disturbance of what is normal in our culture, of what is acceptable. And to those like the leaders in this story, it is annoying. But my friends, the solid truth here is that the gospel disturbs the peace. Peace. It disturbs the peace that we have constructed ourselves. It disturbs those ideas that we have tried to construct to make sense of our world and to make sense of our lives and that will still allow us to live life on our own terms. But the gospel comes in with a higher authority, a higher view, and it says, no, this is actually true, that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. how does that land with you? Is that disturbing to you and your peace? Maybe it's not, maybe it's completely accepted, you've embraced this. And if that's you this morning, then the question should come to your mind, how do we exhibit the kind of boldness that Peter is exhibiting here? Because the word gospel here, at its very core, just simply means good news. But to those who are disturbed by the peace of this good news, who are those whose peace is disturbed by it, rather, they do not see it as good. They see the gospel as being bad news. So how do you talk to people about the good news when all they think is that it's bad news? Where does the boldness come from? Where does the wisdom come from in order to do that well? To find the answer, we need to look back at the text. Verse 13. Now when they, meaning the religious authorities, the ones who are highly educated, highly trained, the ones who have given their life to studying the scriptures, to studying traditions and then enforcing them, When these people saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Peter and John do not have the same schooling or formal education that these men have. In fact, they have nothing that even compares with it. And so that just adds to the whole factor of astonishment when they look and see where are they getting this boldness from. And they recognized, though, that these men, Peter and John, had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It's so inconvenient that this man who has been healed is actually right there as a part of the conversation. He's right, like he's, he hasn't gone away and now we're just talking about what happened, but we don't actually see him. No, he's like listening in. He's right here, standing right next to it, like this podium is right next to me. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, so they tell Peter and John to leave so they can have a private conversation, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed among them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Have you ever had the impression that the people around you or maybe the culture around you wants you to be quiet? Do you hear those messages ever? do Do you take those messages from what you hear out there? Just be quiet about Jesus. Stop talking about him, okay? It's not that there's actually an argument that can be levied against Jesus. It's not that there's actually something that's true that we have to contend with that we can't address. It's not like there's a hole that we have to try to fill with some kind of explanation because Jesus has all of these logical problems. It's not that at all. We just want you to be quiet, this should immediately give us pause whenever we hear the claim that if only we could see a sign from God, we would believe. If only we could see a miracle performed, then we would believe. Now the Bible is full of too many examples of people who witnessed firsthand the wonders of God who do not believe. Verse 17 begins this way, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak no more to anyone in, this na- in his name, in the name of Jesus. This is where we need boldness. Okay, let's move on. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, so good, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must Judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. What an incredible sight. The man was over 40 years old. He might have been my age, although I'm only in my mid-30s, of course. But this man, incredibly, is able to do something after 40 years that he could never do before. It's a cause for celebration, not a cause for arguing, not a cause for opposition. But Peter, in his boldness, blows me away. Because I want to know, where does that boldness come from? I want to know, where do you get that kind of wisdom to be able to respond in the moment to these kinds of charges, to this kind of opposition that defies logic even? Where does that come from? And I'm amazed by Peter, who maybe just a few months earlier, couldn't even stand up to an anonymous servant girl who had accused him of being with Jesus. He folded in that moment, and then he folded two times after that as well. Where did Peter get this kind of boldness? Because if Peter could get that kind of boldness, maybe there's hope for me too. One of the things we should pay attention to as we pursue to answer that question is in verse three, In verse 3 in our passage, it has this word, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. But the word arrested here has behind it in the original language this idea of how they laid their hands on them or they threw their hands on them. These, These leaders, these authorities, laid or threw their hands on them. The reason I bring that up is because back in Luke, this time... In chapter 21, verses 12 through 15, you have this this, um, statement from Jesus. Jesus is talking to his disciples about what they should expect in the future. And he's talking about how wars will happen and how there will be earthquakes and calamities and all of these things in the later times. But he says this, but before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And look at this line. This will be your opportunity for witness. Man, I try to avoid confrontation. I try to run away and think about how can I word this in a way that won't upset them, that won't offend them, How can I say this so that I can find some common ground between us that that might help me establish some credibility with them? And I, I look for things that sound good on the surface, but really at the heart of it are a way out of this very opportunity that Jesus gives me to witness. This will be your opportunity for witness. And then Jesus goes on here and he says, settle it therefore in your minds, not... Not to meditate beforehand, how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or to contradict. So what is Jesus talking about when he says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom? What what does that mean? Well, as we flip back then to our passage in verse 8 of Acts chapter 4, we skipped over, we just blew past this statement that we should not just skip over because it is so critical. In verse 8, the text says this, before Peter even opens his mouth, it says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, the Spirit of God gave Peter the mouth in the wisdom for this moment the Spirit of God is the one who was behind all of these words that Peter was able to speak just right in the moment the Spirit of the God is the one who gives us the ability to proclaim them as well so as we examine this passage this morning I think there are at least a couple of takeaways that we need to consider and keep into our minds First off is just this claim that the gospel disturbs the peace. We see this in verse 12. There's no other name that's been given to men among heaven, under heaven by which we must be saved. How is that sitting with you this morning? Maybe that is disturbing your peace. Maybe you see that as being an annoying claim. If that's you this morning... I would love to invite you to just have a conversation. I'm going to be down here after this service, and I would love to talk to you about what that looks like in your life. The second thing, though, that I think we need to take away from this is the simple fact that the Holy Spirit is the one who meets us, who helps us when the peace is disturbed. That as the gospel goes out, as we are witnesses by what we how we live and by what we say, that the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us at that time. Now we shouldn't overlook the fact that Peter knew his scriptures, that Peter had been with Jesus, that Peter and John are on their way to pray at the temple like a regular thing that they were a part of. So Peter and John were actively pursuing the Lord together in community, and that's true of our lives as well. We should expect that when the Holy Spirit helps us, that the Holy Spirit is helping us in a way that's consistent with the rest of our lives. That as our lives are oriented